Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Brandon Scott Barney to the show. Brandon is an American broadcast journalist and serial entrepreneur with a social conscience. Mr. Barney is a leading researcher on technological disruption and has advised government officials and corporate leaders from around the world on the impacts of emerging technologies. Brandon is working now to connect Silicon Beach to the new blue economy and the potential of seaweed to heal the sea, soil, and air. Brandon, how are you doing today? You know, I'm so grateful to uh, join you. I just got back from a walk, and uh, it's a beautiful day in, in sunny Southern California, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Brandon, I am too. And this may sound like a strange place to start, but how do you farm kelp? Well, you know, nature does most of the work, to be honest with you. So we, we, we try to uh, get our equipment, which is very sustainable, uh, into position, and that's the most difficult part. You know, getting your your kelp farm anchored in the ocean floor, or if it's floating, um, really requires uh, a, a set of marine engineering skills and courage that is uncommon. It's a little bit different than fishing. Um, the ocean is sort of uh, a final frontier of sorts. It's less explored um, than many planets, and the energy in the ocean from the tides and the moon is extraordinary. Um, and so. That's the hard part. But once you get your, your, your seeded lines and you seed them on land in position, um, really, you don't need any fertilizer. You don't need any water. You don't have to irrigate your kelp farm. And um, from there, you, you will visit it and make sure all of the equipment and everything is, is, is in good order. But the kelp really grows on its own. And it, it is a miracle plant. Um, our species, giant kelp, is the fastest growing photosynthesizing sort of organism. It's reported to grow two or three feet a day. I haven't seen it grow on our farm <laughs> that fast. And they keep telling you, you know, don't worry, don't worry. <laughs> you know, it's, it's coming, you know, but it does grow extraordinarily fast. I mean, it's, 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 it's a kind of a, um, it's a miracle uh, plant, I like to call it. It sounds like the bamboo of the water. Yes, it's exactly, um, it's exactly uh, right. And in, in, in Asia, where Kelp farming is done at a scale where you can literally take satellite photographs and see it from space. Bamboo plays a special role in the sustainable drying of kelp, where bamboo poles are basically used to hold seaweed um, up as it air dries. Um, I learned that recently, and I've been inspired, and we are like looking to, as we continue to expand our future production, to you embrace bamboo potentially as a, as a way of uh, teaming with seaweed to kind of reach a regenerative and sustainable future. And you mentioned seaweed. How is kelp different from seaweed? You know, kelp is a, is a type of seaweed. They're, they're used interchangeably by many people, and so that's very familiar, and you're not misspeaking if you use, use them. But if you talk to a seaweed scientist or if you go to 
a seaweed research conference, you you dig into it a little bit, and and the kelps are mainly um, the brown, larger types of seaweed, whereas there are red and green uh, types of seaweed, and they are not usually referred to as kelps. I'm laughing because you mentioned the seaweed conference. Well, I'll tell you, the last seaweed conference I attended was extraordinary. <laughs> I was with the CEO of our company, uh, Scotty Schmidt, and t- a team of our um, friends from all around the world. It took place in Korea um, on Jeju Island. This was before the pandemic, of course. Um, I think it was April 20, 2019, I believe. But it um, it happens every three years. And um, there's seaweed researchers from all over the world. And I can tell you that, you know, from the ice cream that you may enjoy um, at dessert tonight or um, the organic food that you, you you plan to pick up from the market later today or even sustainable packaging. Seaweed is is sort of all around us and in our lives and in many supply chains. Um, and so, uh, you know, uh, it's just an exciting time to be in the, in the, in the community. Um, these conferences have been suspended due to COVID, but I believe the next one is going to be in Australia um, in Tasmania. Um, and I'm looking forward to it. And since we started speaking about kelp, can you give the audience an overview of Primary Ocean and your role at the organization? Yes. So Primary Ocean is one of the U.S.'s leading seaweed companies. We're very proud to say that um, founded four years ago. I co-founded uh, the company with two of my best friends, Scotty and Brian Schmidt. Um, we've been lucky and we've worked hard. And we are currently involved throughout the value chain um, from cultivation to processing, to marketing and sales of seaweed products, you know, increasingly around the world. Um, you know, when we talked about kelp farming, that's what we're most well known for because we're one of a group of companies and we're not alone. And our partners are very experienced companies, many of them from Europe or even Chile, other parts of the world. Um, we're leading the commercialization piece, how to turn this kelp farms, kelp into valuable products that solve human problems. But um, our Cultivation wing is very exciting because the prospect of really farming large amounts of the ocean in a clean and sustainable way to then take that rich superfood and do things with it that we need urgently in the soil to help regenerate the soil and improve yield and reduce the need for chemicals in our agriculture, or then to replace certain petrochemicals as we want to move away from fossil fuels. We need to replace certain um, chemicals that Fossil fuel derivatives are sort of involved in many supply chains and seaweed is a kelp and giant kelp is a major resource for that. But it goes on and on, even into biofuels, sustainable aviation fuel, et cetera. So it's just um, in the cultivation side, there's so much excitement to no longer take from the natural uh, world and to really use the power of the ocean and and the one of nature's sort of super weight heavyweights in terms of biomass productivity and then to use all of this biomass and then solve many or work to solve with others, many of these other problems, it's super exciting. But we, we do have a sort of contract factory, which we're very proud of. It's very, um, it's sort of one of our jewels. We're able to produce our liquid organic agricultural input. It's a giant kelp product that's currently being used by farmers throughout the United States. Um, increasingly, we're happy to send anyone any trials. It's actually available on Amazon. It's called Organic Help. Our factory also produces some animal feed products like chicken feeds and cosmetic products. Um, but our focus is on our agricultural division right now, especially as the U.S. is facing a historic drought and many other 
food producing regions of the world are dealing with increasingly difficult conditions due to the climate change. And so we're really, um, really focused on trying to solve these water crisis and the soil crisis with our giant kelp uh, seaweed product portfolio. Uh, recently, we added to our board some very senior executives in the global bio ag linkages um, community led by uh, Roger Tripathi. And we're really looking forward to this upcoming quarter working with them and continuing to work with more farmers around the world to um, address these major crises that we're facing. Now, how did you and your friends decide to become kelp farmers? You know, the, the original story is that one of my, my best friends and one of our partners, Brian Schmidt, he was, on a monas- he was in a monastery um, and he, he was eating mainly spirulina as a nutrient while fasting. And he returned and he told uh, his, his brother, uh, one of my uh, dear friends, Scotty, that seaweed was going to be his future. At that time, I was uh, really focused on hosting and producing a show about the future of science and technology. And so I told Brian, I said, hey, you know, if you are interested in seaweed and the future of seaweed, let's, you know, call a bunch of seaweed scientists and call a bunch of seaweed companies and see what what will people tell us about these articles that we've read that seaweed can address methane mitigation in livestock or seaweed can address these different problems. And so we started doing that. And for about a year, we just would, you know, Every, every uh, week, call another, different, another research group, whether in Norway or Korea or in Kansas or a company in Maine or Alaska or in Chile. And eventually, we learned a lot. And we ended up um, investing in a company called the Catalina Sea Ranch, which was the U.S.'s first offshore mussel farm, uh, which also had seaweed rights and later won a large U.S. Uh, research grant to farm seaweed. And so we, we sort of did, went to grad school, so to speak, uh, spent about a year just calling every seaweed company in the, you know, there's an international seaweed symposium. So you can go to the library and get the book of the last one. And then at the back, it has everyone who attended email addresses and phone numbers that we just, you know, like investigative journalists almost hit the, hit the books and just called up a bunch of people. Um, and what ended up happening is we discovered a really fast growing industry where there is no major industry for kelp farming or large-scale kelp processing in California. And so we're able to participate in really this international exchange of knowledge and experience and advanced technology and put all these pieces together um, to address some of the major goals of California and the U.S. to become more sustainable, et cetera, et cetera. So we we did not get our PhDs in in seaweed prior to starting our company. But we have gotten a PhD in hard work and uh, it endured many, many different challenges. And ultimately, you know, we are very happy to be working with people who, who have uh, been working in this field their entire lives. So the principal investigator on our ARPA-E grant is Javier Infante, and he is a Chilean expert among experts of seaweed farming with experience um, specifically in giant kelp and our team also includes Oliver Gregerson, who is the great Faroese seaweed farmer of Northern Europe, operating one of the largest, most offshore seaweed farms in the Arctic Ocean. And so also uh, Job of Hortamare, the leading seaweed sort of hatchery company. And so we're combining the experts from around the world. um, And we see ourselves largely as cheerleaders and largely as 
um, people who are the kind of glue that pieces together the cultivation, the processing, and then the product performance for the customers, studying how can we formulate the products to meet the needs of our end customers. So we work throughout the value chain to sort of increase the, the rate at which this sort of revolution can really impact people's lives. What are seaweed rights? That's very, so there's a film actually that, that sort of is the best overview of this. It's called, They Say It Can't Be Done. Um, our, our challenges to get the seaweed rights are discussed in the film. Essentially, you know, the, the coast of the U.S. is governed by a variety of different um, organizations and institutions. So the Coast Guard and the California Coastal Commission and the Department of Fish and Wildlife and the U.S. Navy and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and many different organizations have a right to the water around the coast in some way, shape, or form. And so to have a seaweed farm or even to wild harvest seaweed from a location, you have to essentially complete a tremendous amount of paperwork with all the relevant interests to explain what you're doing and how it's going to uh, be beneficial for society. And that whole process is what I'm referring to by the seaweed rights. And how long does it take to get permission to farm seaweed or get seaweed rights? If you have to ask, the industry is not for you. <laughs> How badly do you want these seaweed rights? <laughs> that long, huh? Well, you know, I mean, what I can say is that I can tell you something that I believe, but if it took longer than that, I would not want you to fault me. It's the kind of thing where, you know, what we've learned is that when you're dealing with a democratic society, a big state like California in particular, you know, there are a lot of interests. And we had hoped that California would expand the areas for, you know, seaweed cultivation in a, in, a, in a faster way. We're very optimistic that the recent news with respect to um, the governor and the president announcing the large offshore wind project in Northern California, the Navy has finally signed off on that, that that will essentially, quote unquote, open up California waters to renewable energy projects and other renewable projects. Um, we don't really see it as any particular group's fault or that there's any issue as we've become wise in the process. This is new and the people are curious and they want to know. And many of these technologies are, are in development or have been only recently possible through the amazing revolution of technology that we've all lived through. So, you know, I've, I've tried to become very patient as we are working our way through the regulatory process. Um, I mean, I'm very optimistic that, you know, that the permits for all of the projects that we've applied for and many of our sister projects and other research groups and companies will be approved. But currently there is a backlog. You know, we welcome people to call their senator. I saw that California had a large surplus. I said, hey, let's Let's uh, increase the staffing perhaps, maybe on a contract basis for a lot of the agencies that have been understaffed, you know, just to, you know, help boost the economic development of the state. You know, we've heard from regulators and different people in different offices that they wish that they had more, more, more help, that there's a lot of work. Um, so, you know, I mean, uh, we hope that California would lead um, and that the United States would lead uh, the world in the use of the ocean uh, because we, we have a lot of it. The government in our research group funds our research because the Department of Energy looked out and they said, wow, look at all this great ocean space. You know, if we could 
do something useful with it that was not harmful to the ecosystem. We could maybe retire some of our, um, you know, we could we could better utilize some of our land uh, resources and our and return some areas of land sort of back to nature. With the U.S.'s, uh, they call it the exclusive economic zone. But you know, it is a process, and we appreciate like this conversation with you, people learning about the issue, getting involved, whether they're for or. Um, they're almost for <laughs> uh, what we're doing. They're, they're, they're lukewarm. Uh, we hope to convince them. I have to tell you, you know, one of the groups that is a group we've been in discussions with very early is the fishers, the fishing group. And a lot of fishers feel that, you know, the environmental protection in California has protected large areas of the coast. So they're not able to fish in those areas. And they're worried that if seaweed farming or offshore wind and all of these new projects keep coming, then some of their um, ancestral livelihoods are, are, are threatened. There are interests of native tribes, you know, indigenous tribes. One of the sort of black swans of our planning, so to speak, which we feel is probably just, or we agree is just, is the complexity of dealing with all of the the native tribes in California and what historical burial grounds may be under the ocean or um, what unknowns may be associated with it. So our industry is very public in the sense that, at least with respect to the farming of the ocean, the ocean is a common sort of heritage of all humanity. And the ocean on California's coast is is, is a particular interest to people in California. So but we do appreciate um, all the support that we can for people who love seaweed. If you eat seaweed, feel free to um, call your representative and say, hey, you know, maybe we, we, we don't want more fossil fuel, but we do want more uh, biofuel. We want more seaweed. Uh, we want sustainable aviation fuel. We think that we can produce those things. We want to bring those jobs and that economic development uh, where we live um, in California. So we're working to achieve that. Now, you mentioned projects, and earlier you were talking about the different products. What about, I'm looking at your website, the bioremediation. How do you envision using seaweed or kelp for bioremediation? This is one of the most important uh, questions. I'm so happy that you asked. You know, to some extent, seaweed is doing this naturally, and we, we can benefit from this. So for illustration, um, as a part of our agricultural activities in California, we fertilize the land. The Green Revolution is one of the most impactful things that ever happened. Like one out of every three people or, or something in that area, maybe more, are alive because of the Green Revolution, where we learned how to create um, nutrients for plants. Now, a lot of that wonderful fertilizer actually runs off into the ocean. When it enters the ocean, um, it can disrupt the ecosystems in some sensitive coastal regions. There's, there's a lot of research done, um, not only here in California, but also on the East Coast and in Alaska and in Europe and in other places that show that uh, seaweed installations, seaweed farms can absorb a lot of the agricultural runoff, essentially. And then we can recycle the nutrients back into the soil and close this loop rather than continuing to mine more and more and uh, produce more and more fertilizer, we may be able to just absorb some of the runoff and then recycle it to the soil. And so that's a major vision that we have. And is our one of our key goals is we can help remediate coastal waters um, and, and regenerate ecosystems um, and fish habitat by essentially farming seaweed. That's very interesting. I'm going to shift gears here to get to the crux of our conversation, which is the why behind what you do. You know, you mentioned 
your your friend's brother, I believe, who was in the monastery, came and told you about seaweed. So you saw you know potential opportunity there. Maybe part of it was an economic opportunity, but now you you know dedicated your life or a small part of your life last four years towards farming kelp seaweed. What's your why? What what drives you? You know what made you say this is the area I want to double down on? Well, for me, what I read about, I'm just a, a kind of a somewhat of a bookish person. I grew up in the software sort of generation. My idols were Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. And I believe that software was the solution basically to, to many problems. And I still believe that. I think that we're still at the birth um, of the software revolution. I started to read in a lot of different journals that biology was also coming and it was empowered by software. Uh, now with bioinformatics, computers, um, lower cost microbiological tools and refinements in our handling of sensitive biological materials, microscopes and whatnot, there's going to be another revolution and that maybe DNA was the original sort of software. And so I kind of thought to myself, how can I, you know, unify my software and computational and quantitative sort of approach and engage in this revolution of biology, given the context of climate change? And my personal opinion was, you know, I don't, Typically in the computing world, my instincts are to go where the power is, like where is the, the most powerful supercomputer or what is the most efficient um, you know, uh, operating system or what is the most widely used sort of uh, HTML uh, version. I'm interested in, in impact. And when I studied biology, I was really focused on the best, the biggest, the fastest, the strongest, and the best. And what I found myself really concentrated on are what they call the primary producers. So in the ecosystem, microalgae, macroalgae, these things along with land plants are the basis of the entire ecosystem. They produce the biomass, which is then eaten by something and eaten by something else and eaten by something else. They are the solar cells of the biosphere, so to speak. And then within that, I said, which is the biggest and the baddest and the best? And giant kelp is that winner, actually. Among all the photosynthesizing organisms, it has the, you know, the most productivity per area. And so that's kind of how I felt went through this process of selection. I said, what can be done with, what can be done? How can you do it? And we, we stumbled into you know, it's, it reminds me almost of the internet where in the 1970s, during the, the sort of first major oil crisis, the U.S. government and General Electric and Gas Research Institute, you know, put an enormous amount of money at the problem, farming giant kelp in the ocean. And then it kind of goes sort of uh, after 10 or 15 years, it kind of goes overseas where in China, they really scale up their farming of a similar type of seaweed. Um, and so a lot of the intermediate markets um, have actually been captured by a lot of um, sort of alginate producers in China. But the resource issues have come back in the same way that they were in the 1970s. And so there's been a fresh round of investment in the European Union and the America in automated seaweed farming. It was too soon in the 1970s. The technology wasn't there. The costs were too high. Now, with the reductions in cost and floating wind turbines and improved cheap high-resolution satellite photography and underwater drones and all of this amazing fruit of the information technology revolution, 
it's now going to be possible for automated large-scale seaweed farms to exist well off the coast beyond the line of sight, producing uh, enough biomass to really address some of these critical issues um, that we're facing um, in some of our most populated coastal regions and the, the regions around them. So I think that, um, you know, I kind of was sort of boxed into it, actually. I, I want to try to solve the problem. I did not study biology, so I just had to filter what is the most powerful uh, species within nature according to the criteria that I set out. And, and that's how I kind of have reached this strong conviction that among many other things, you know, we need to study nature very carefully, understand as we were starting to learn the power of microbes um, and microbiology and the microbiome. But I think we also have to respect the insects um, I think you and I, Raj, have previously maybe uh, discussed this at, at some depth, but, you know, I personally think that, you know, from seaweed, I look at nature, what's the next step? If I walk down a beach, what is nature telling me? And then I try to study that very carefully, those interactions. And then I try to think very, very carefully about the big problems, the crises that are happening, and how can I sort of swim with what nature is doing, but direct it towards some human problem. I like the idea of swimming with what nature is doing. You know, you mentioned microalgae and macroalgae. Have you seen uh, the recent movie on Netflix, The Fantastic Fungi? Yes, I have. Absolutely. It's amazing, isn't it? This is such an important uh, thing that you mentioned. I mean, I think that, you know, your podcast is called Bigger Than Us, if I'm not mistaken. That's correct. Okay. So, like, the world consists of fungi, and we don't talk about them. <laughs> and all that we go back, you can go back to what they tried to teach us when we were all children in middle school. They sit you down, I don't know, middle school, high school, or wherever you're in the world, wherever they sequence it. And they say there are bacteria, there are animals, there are plants, there are protists, and there are fungi. Now I go out and I read the newspaper, all these guys are having all these brilliant ideas of uses of fungi. And I have to ask myself, why didn't I ever think about fungi? My <laughs> biology teacher tried to help me. She didn't elevate the fun, you know, it was all there. Those are the kingdoms of life. These are the things that are here. You know, I, I want to tell you something about fungi that gets me really, really excited. I, I'm almost giving away a business, but I don't believe, I want competition in this area. I like to read a lot. I read some papers that fungi, certain species of them can eat radioactive waste. That's amazing. And I hear everyone's trying to make leather. I'm like, hmm, just wait till I finish this seaweed thing. I got a plan for <laughs> fungi. We need to follow nature. They're the decomposers of nature. They are. So. Now, earlier you mentioned solving problems. So what's the most valuable lesson you've learned on your journey so far? The biggest problem is what the, what the spiritual people are talking about. It's been inside myself. The reason why I have not achieved the goal is in part because I haven't yet figured out how to reach out to everyone. I haven't, you know, I was talking to one of my friends, very devout Christian, and we were talking about, you know, it, was Jesus serious when he said, love your enemies the way you love yourself? Now, I, my friend commented something that I didn't know that Martin Luther King said, hey, you know, if we just nonviolently go to jail and peacefully protest, we can change people's hearts. And I believe that he was right to some extent. Maybe, maybe the work is not yet finished, but I think that, you know, some of these spiritual ideas about the way to solve a problem is not necessarily raising a bigger round hiring more smart people, having a better PR firm, but trying to love the regulators, maybe. How can we love them? What can we do? How can we, how can we think about this in a different way? I only comment that in a lot of countries where I've seen 
the rapid expansion of the industry, some of our competitors, there's this very close coupling between the coastal people and the farmers and the processors and the government, and they're all together and they're all on the same team. And I don't, it's hard for me to understand how to replicate that sort of success as I see how some of our comp competition overseas is doing it without thinking that maybe it's not that we need just more money. We need to approach the institutions and the other elements, at least if we are looking to produce here in North America and create more, more unity like there is in Korea or in Japan and some of our, um, you know, uh, regions. So what's your lesson in that? I think that the lesson is, is that it, it's not just brain power. You know, we need to, I think that it's not just financial resources or brain power for seaweed farming to succeed. And for lots of seaweed products, especially in agriculture, we have to listen and to engage with these major other groups. It's not like software where, you know, we can find a data center somewhere where there's hydropower and it's going to be clean energy and then have guys in their laptops in their apartments, and no one can kind of really see what's happening. Our business is in the water. It's, it's public. And so we can't just be right. We have to, it has to feel right for everyone, <laughs> which, is, which is difficult, actually. It has to feel right for the people to accept it. It can't just be intellectually right or scientifically correct. I can understand that. Now, speaking of feeling right, let's move into the future. It's 2030. Let's say Newsweek, Business Week, Fortune were to write a headline about Primary Ocean, what would you like it to read? Primary Ocean has reached 100 million acres covered by organic help, regenerating key agricultural land essential for the continuation of the human species. That's a beautiful headline. We're working every day to achieve it, but we need your help. I'm on board. I love it. I love it. Well, before I get to my last question, can you share more information about the movie, They Say It Can't Be Done, and where people can find it? Yes. So there is a film that addresses not just our company, but other exciting and very interesting uh, companies, including organ printing to replace organs for people who need them, different ways of producing meat where you don't have to harm any living creature. You may be able to produce chicken in a honestly, in a factory, in a clean room, the same way you can produce a vaccine. I think that the best way to find out more information is to either go to the website, theysayitcantbedone.com. And on that website, depending on whether you use Apple TV or YouTube, or you have a particular cable provider, you'll be able to link to um, the best way for you to watch uh, the film, which I highly recommend. But of course, you can also just search on YouTube. Uh, they say it can't be done. There's, there's trailers and pretty much on Apple TV or any streaming platform. Um, if you search, they say it can't be done. You should be able to find it. I appreciate that, Brandon. And I'll put it in the show notes too. Now, last question. And earlier you mentioned listening and engaging, which is also advice and words of wisdom. But if you could share some specific advice, words of wisdom or recommendations, and it could be professional or personal with the audience, what would it be? I started to basically uh, wake up earlier and to try to walk 10,000 steps, which is about five miles, just walk, whether talking on the phone or um, listening to audiobooks every day uh, since I've been on Zoom back to back and, and, and very busy. And I have to say that I believe that it's helped me. Um, it's the most help that I could do was to uh, just try to take care of myself and not just uh, wearing masks and the, and, the, and the public health advice, but I definitely could say that if we all just... Uh, 
walked around our neighborhoods more um, and and actively uh, kept our bodies in in good good shape, we would meet our goals and achieve things much more effectively. Well, it sounds like you're coming back to that uh, swimming with nature idea. Well, we're bipedal. I'll tell you, we're bipedal organisms. I tell people, you know, like as much as I love going to the gym for other people, I really believe that we were meant to walk around a little bit more than we're, we're doing right now. Uh, you, I'd love to go on a walk with you, Raj. I'll, I'll see you in Dallas if you ever come to LA. You know, I mean, it's one of my favorite things. I would love to. And I appreciate your time today and look forward to catching up with you again soon. Well, I look forward to that. Thank you, Brandon. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech, green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.